On n'allume pas la radio aujourd'hui. Si. the Ackerman year. That's right, folks. It's part nine. It's here. I'm Simon Howell. Kate Rennebaum is also here. Hello, Kate. I am here. We have managed to find time to make this ninth episode happen. It's happening. It's happening. Yes. Mild apologies for the delay. (laughs) No, Kate, don't don't apologize. Don't apologize. No. You will, listeners at home, you will take what you can get when you get it and you will like it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Sometimes applying for jobs uh, takes precedence over recording podcasts in my life. Sometimes that has to happen. I'd like to think that's the attitude Ackerman would like us to showcase. Just, you know, we'll do the work and you can take it when you like, as you like it. Um, Anyway, uh, so this month we are writing uh, guest lists for another really tightly grouped section of films that uh, I think once again showcase another side of uh, Ackerman's documentary work. Uh, the two features we're going to be spending most of our time on are uh, Sud and De L'Autre Côté. They're from, I believe, 1999 and 2001, respectively. Do I have that right? 2002. 2002, 2002. for De L'Autre Côté. Right. Um, before we get to those, uh, we do have some smaller bits of business to talk about. Um, was there an order you wanted to do those in, Kate, or did you just want to get right into the uh, the, the long anticipated collision of Kathleen Deneuve? <laughs> no, I do. We should do that one first, but we should say a that the theme for this week is um, sort of politics, right? That's one thing we're gonna try to dig into yeah. a little bit global more. Global politics, comment. specifically global politics but then it's um kind of funny because historically whenever simon and i don't have a guest on the podcast is when we get like the most loopy and things go like completely sideways and become ridiculous which isn't actually a very good fit for this topic so we'll see how we can, uh, see how we can on topic we can focus yeah exactly stay on topic all right well let's get started since uh since our, our features come from a little later let's rewind back to 1991 the 30th anniversary of amnesty international uh, which ends up being the springboard for another strange little curio in Ackerman's career. Yes. Uh, yeah. So the film is called Poor Fabe, Fabe or Fabi, uh, Elizabeth Vasquez, Velasquez, sorry, uh, El Salvador. That's the title of the film. Um, and it belongs in this uh, collection, which I think Simon should pronounce because his French pronunciation is better than me. I have the title of the film as Écrire contre l'oubli. No, I think the no, I think the I, I don't know if that's is a that confusion wrong? about I well I can't tell actually. I think it's a confusion about what the actual name of the series is, but I'm fairly sure the name of the film is is poor Phoebe uh, Elizabeth Velasco's El Salvador because right. all of the other films in the series have um like similar names. They're all named for uh, different um amnesty uh, sort of projects and amnesty calls that were made for different individuals. Um, 30 directors to conceive 30 short films of three minutes based on 30 amnesty appeals. Um, and again, you know, it's like the list of people who are involved with this is quite impressive. It's like Claire Denis, uh, Raymond Depardon, um, 
uh, Jane Birkin, Costa Gavras. But yes, yeah, so um, Fabia Elizabeth Velasquez was a, um, she was an El Salvadorian trade unionist and mother of three. Uh, and she was um, kidnapped and tortured and then released and then later murdered in a bomb explosion that killed nine other people. Uh, and so she was part of this um, project. And so the film is Ackerman responding to this in a kind of long form poetic uh, monologue that she wrote. And the film has Catherine Deneuve walking slowly up to the camera. It's like one take. Catherine Deneuve is sort of very far away at the beginning and it's nighttime in Paris. And she walks slowly up towards the image as she's reciting this very poetic uh, kind of, I, I don't know, memorial, I guess, to, mm -hmm. if you want to say it that way, yeah, to uh, to Velasquez and um, and then walks off the frame. And I don't know, it's interesting. I'd never seen this film before. So what did you think of it, Simon? It's quite odd that it mm -hmm. that this is the one collision of Ackerman and Deneuve. I mean, I'm sure that they, I seem to recall they'd planned to do other things and nothing ever came together. Editor's note. I didn't have a good way to get rid of that, but uh, I'm pretty sure I made this up completely. Sorry, I must have been on drugs or something. Whoop. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I feel, I hadn't really thought about it so much in terms of the connection with Deneuve. I thought about it more as like sort of part of the theme of of politics for this week. And sure. because again, I, I had programmed it for this week thinking that it obviously makes sense to <laughs> connect it with this question of sort of global politics. Um, but I think maybe right off the bat, it introduces questions that will, that will run as a debate through this whole discussion, which is the, um, you know, kind of tension or contrast or however you want to frame it between more sort of flagrantly aesthetic or artistic modes and more kind of hardline political modes, because this is really not what you would sort of consider like a political film in, 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 in the better known definitions of that term. Like it reads much more as a sort of, um, yeah, I mean, it reads as an Ackerman film. It reads as this sort of poetic kind of, uh, I mean, then already I'm accidentally setting up a contrast where I'm implying that Ackerman's <laughs> films aren't political films. Oh, no. Not what I meant to do. Not what I meant to do. But you know what I mean, though, right, Simon? Yeah, yeah. Like, you, it doesn't, to me, if you, if you had just been shown this film, I don't think you would have necessarily gotten that it was part of a series made for Amnesty International about, like, yeah. international rights activists being murdered, you know? Well, the thing that I really noticed in this grouping of films and this this little film goes really nicely in that sense is that one through line in all of them is Ackerman focus focusing in on on the the human cost of conflict of negligence or whatever um, and doing that in slightly different ways. And I think all three of them this well, well, we can talk about this more when we get to the other films, but. There's tension potentially with like documentary filmmakers since time immemorial have been accused of sensationalizing things or exploiting, uh, you know, exploiting situations for for dramatic effect uh, or value. Um, and Ackerman has like a whole bunch of strategies, I think, for of her own, not necessarily for programmatically trying to get around it, but just doing things her way uh, and sort of let letting the letting the viewer decide. And uh, this definitely is is uh, much more on the on the poetic end, as as you as you would want to say of her expression of grief, uh, which is it, which is to me very closely connected to her how she handles uh, politics. Um, but that pendulum is going to swing all over the place um, in these films, uh, sometimes from scene to scene. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that gets at a lot of it. The film feels, yeah, more about sort of mourning or kind of enacting 
enacting an idea of remembrance as a form of resistance, right? Like this is the mm-hmm. thing is like, we will not forget you. And um, which I think the sort of the whole project seems to be very much <laughs> in the spirit of, oh, and we should say too, the film isn't only that shot of Catherine Jenner walking up. It actually, weirdly, the, the, the series has it open with a shot of Catherine Deneuve and Ackerman uh, from the set. So they're there, this like yeah. black and white photo of them in the set, which is a very strange choice because it really doesn't read as something that Ackerman would have chosen to do because it's like her in a puffy winter jacket, like smiling at the camera with Deneuve walking around in the background. And it's not at all in line with the rest of the film. And then you get the credits and then you get um, a shot of, of this woman, Phoebe Elizabeth Velasquez, uh, facing at the camera, smiling, um, you know, sort of looking very uh, sweet and happy. And and it, the rest of the monologue feels like it's addressed to that photo and it's talking about her sort of smile and, um, you know, how she died and that we won't forget these things. And and then, yeah, as you say, some of the kind of human cost of the people around her who've lost her. And um, yeah, it's, it's very, it, it's very touching film for sure. Uh, just as another sort of interesting kind of curio, there, Ackerman was also involved in another um, one of these kinds of collective projects uh, later in 2010. And the collective film was called uh, En Bosse Ici, En Vie Ici, En Reste Ici, uh, which was directed officially by the Collectif des Cineastes pour le Sans Papier, uh, or the, the Stateless People, People Without Papers um, in France. And Ackerman co-signed this short film as part of a group of 320 filmmakers. Uh, you know, so it was it was a call for like the regular regularization by the French government of all the undocumented workers living in the country. There was a big sort of organized movement around this at the time. Um, and uh, anyway, so I just wanted to mention that as well that this is this is something that Ackerman clearly was sort of engaged in throughout her career, thinking about these different questions. And we've already pointed that out on the podcast that Ackerman is very drawn to this kind of figure of the migrant, of the stateless person, of the person without a home. And um, so, yeah, just a, this sort of, just another thing to put in the background of this question of the kind of political in Ackerman's films before we turn to the features. Yeah, and obviously the que- the question of sort of stateless people will come back in a very big mm-hmm. way when we talk about the L'Autre Côté. But for now, we have another feature to talk about, and that is 1999's Sud, for which Ackerman and company traveled to Jasper, Texas, uh, for a, a another just totally different uh, slice of life. Over on the Jones place from where y'all were today, that church, on down the road from there, it was a wood, just was a settlement of black people lived over there. But they was on the white man's plantation, and they had to do what he said do. But when the civil rights movement came into the county, that made a whole big difference. They didn't come up and they didn't have the nerve to come up face to face until you had to get out of their houses. They would go home and write you a letter and give you so many days to be gone and would tell you on that letter, I want my house for hay. You is no longer needed. That's the way they did us. Water in the wells, which is free. They didn't even want us to get water from their wells. We had to go down through the woods and ditches, which you call a spring, and drink water from a spring. That's the way the white people did here in these parts of the country. But it's better now. I'm really sure the first time I saw Sud was... Um when before my PhD, I traveled down to Boston to see uh, this 
installation at the MIT List Gallery of Ackerman's work, her installation work, which maybe I've already mentioned here, I don't remember, but uh, they had sh- they were showing Sud in, uh, you know, like in a gallery installation setting, and so it was a black ball. It was a, it was closed off. It was enclosed, but it only had one little bench to sit on. So I watched this entire like night. <laughs> on this bench and I don't think I saw it from the right beginning I think I watched it like on an off beginning and ending um, which was a really interesting way to see the film and I also didn't know enough about it the film reads very differently when you have information about it as we will get to but uh, okay so let's see so the how this film comes into being so uh, Ackerman had done some work uh, in the kind of latter half of the 90s preparing another documentary called um, Du Moyen-Orient, or I'm not saying that very well probably, but about the Middle East. And she had traveled to Syria, Lebanon, and Jordan in 1997 to kind of prepare for this film. But the funding ultimately didn't come through and the project was scrapped, which I think she was quite upset about. But then I think that was eventually later funneled into Laval, at least some of her thinking was. But anyway, and then she ends up at Harvard teaching in the late 90s, which we have not talked about here. But um, I, you know, just as a as a personal thing, I really, it makes me sad that I was never able to cross paths with her there. She obviously predated me by a long time. But she tells this story about how Sud was born out of something that happened at Harvard that just like gets me. That she... Um, I believe she only taught there. I think she taught there for two years. And all I, I know some people from the department who knew her. And, you know, of course, they all have lovely things to say about her. But the one story that people might recognize is that she was the um, thesis advisor, the, like, film thesis advisor for Andrew Bujalski when he was studying there. So Bujalski studied with Ackerman, which I think is great. But anyway, she would be teaching and she would be walking around in the morning at, uh, at Harvard. And she would walk past the uh, Harvard Film Archive Theater, which is used as a teaching theater during the week and she would just wander in and watch whatever film was being shown on the way to her class and she walked in one day and watched like 20 minutes of gummo harmony kareen's gummo and found it really disturbing and really disorienting and she says she's never seen the rest of the film it's only those 20 minutes but it really she felt very like prompted by that film to grapple with this idea of a kind of like frightening emptiness or like unsettling ordinary at the heart of this sort of American kind of particularly Southern American experience. So that was part of what started her off on it. And then she started researching um, the American South and she she was also inspired by uh, the works of James Baldwin and uh, William Faulkner. And it was supposed to be more of a kind of generalized portrait of the American South. Apparently she'd already traveled to Alabama, Mississippi, uh, Louisiana, and Georgia at the beginning of this. And then the murder of James Byrd Jr. happened. And we, I can say what that is or Simon can, but the, um, and that, and at that point she decided to orient the film more in relation to this murder, which took place in Jasper, Texas. And um, as she says, though, it was never meant to be a kind of anatomy of the crime. It was more about this sort of investigation of, as she put it, something like how it inscribes itself in the mental and physical landscape of this place. Um, but yeah, do you want to, do you want to recount the details of the crime or do you want me to do it? Uh, well, actually, I don't think either of us need to do it right here. I'm going to throw in a clip from the film. Uh, for once I'm going to do something I don't think I've ever done on the show before and just say this clip contains disturbing, uh, details. So you've been warned, but it's, I think, uh, including this will give you some idea of the tone and severity of the content. So here we go. Uh, apparently the, the, uh, According to the sheriff later on, the three men picked, picked Mr. Bird up uh, 
on Highway 96 North, somewhere near the Ramada Inn, and uh, or no, the Holiday Inn Express, excuse me. Uh, picked him up, took him to a, a remote location where they uh, took him out of the truck, uh, beat him, and then chained him to the back of the truck. They then apparently drug him approximately three miles down a, uh, a, uh, a back road uh, through a, a predominantly black portion of the county. Uh, the name of the road was Huff Creek Road. It's about six miles to the east of Jasper. Uh, and again, that area is predominantly black. Uh, they uh, unchained Mr. Bird. Uh, in front of a black cemetery, the Huff Creek Cemetery. Um, in the process of dragging him uh, that distance, uh, apparently he at one point struck a culvert pipe which ripped his head and his right arm from his torso. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, it, uh, and pieces of his body were found scattered all along the three mile stretch of road. Uh, on Tuesday, after the murder had been discovered, the police released a, an affidavit for a search warrant, which gave a statement by one of the men who was accused, uh, Sean Barry, uh, who uh, I believe is 22. Uh, he's a native. Uh, he's a Jasper resident as well. Uh, and in the statement, he gave an account similar to what I just just told you. Uh, uh, but he elaborated that it was that it was racially motivated and that it was a white supremacist uh, he basically said that 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 the uh, the ringleader of the group William King uh, wanted to and I quote uh, show uh, scare the hell out of this nigger so once again we're dealing with morning although in uh the short we were discussing before it was sort of an after the fact evocation and here ackerman is very much in the thick of a situation that is quite fresh which is something that i don't think we've really seen her do in a documentary before no i believe it was only three months after the crime had happened was when they were shooting in um jasper and the even though it takes place much later in, into the film i think it happens at about the midway point or the latter half of the film uh the first thing they filmed was the memorial service for james bird jr so they were they arrived in town and they were invited into this um uh not just not predominantly exclusively black congregation uh to film the proceedings and we can come back to that because it makes more sense to talk about it a little bit later but uh but yeah, so I mean, I don't know. I want to hear from Simon, but I could just say off the bat that this film, I think it all, it, it holds a, a complex place in Ackerman's career. I think it is certainly one of the more divisive films in her, her oeuvre. <laughs> so yeah, Simon, uh, I don't know. What did you think of it? I find it interesting that it's divisive. Maybe we can get into why that is, because uh, I haven't read that much about people's takes on it. I've mostly just seen it myself, and I've read a bit of the scholarship of how it was made, etc. I really like the film. I actually really like both of the features we're talking about today. It's interesting that of all the docs of hers that we've watched so far, this is the one that contains no Ackerman. Like she, I mean, I mean, visibly or audibly, right? She has no voiceover. Um, you don't see her in even in reflection. You don't hear her ask questions. You get 
uh, one-on-one interviews on occasion, but no Ackerman content. You get the feeling, wh- whether it's intentional or not, you get the feeling of like sort of an enforced distance between subject and teller, right? I wondered how sort of calculated that was versus uh, versus something that came together in the edit. I'm not sure, but it is it's a it's an interesting um, it's an interesting contrast, and I'll be curious to hear from you sort of what people's objections are about her approach because I think the the reason the film mainly worked for me was sort of a combination of that with just the fact that it's not you know we're talking about a 71 minute feature um, that has a variety of approaches that sort of switches between sort of these landscape shots that go on for several minutes where, where there's that are sort of more typical of what you might expect from Ackerman style um, along with these really um, unusual for Ackerman in, in, in terms of how detailed the interviews get and how much, how much context we get for the socioeconomic situation, et cetera. And for this, the details of how white supremacy operates uh, and, and things like that. There's, really dense uh, informational uh, uh, sequences, which are then interspersed really interestingly with these sequences of no dialogue at all. I think that sort of juxtaposition does, I think it more or less gets at what Ackerman, I think, wants, which is to get us thinking about the relationship between the events and the landscape uh, in a way that I think doesn't get us too mired in the questions that people seem to love to talk about anyway. I, you know, one of the questions here is is sort of people's question about whether the kind of more journalistic approach that she takes here works, like whether it it melds particularly well with the more avant-garde material, because as you say, it is, the interviews do operate differently in this film than they do in her other films. I mean, certainly even compared to the one we'll watch next, um, the interviews there are often less about delivering information, although that one is a bit of a middle ground, you get some of it there. But historically, the interviews in her films are less about delivering information and more about sort of presenting a kind of scene or a surface of of other people, of the other, right, that you're meant to kind of like read or analyze or engage with or feel distanced from. Whereas here, you maybe get a little bit of that, but by and large, the interviews, which vary between um, members of the uh, often visibly economically worse or off black community uh, in Jasper, Texas, and then um, frequently authority figures in the white community. uh, Ackerman speaks to a journalist who recounts the details of Bird's murder. She speaks to a sheriff who kind of downplays the idea that the the crimes or the problems in Jasper have to do with racial uh, issues. He instead claims that it has to do with kind of economic realities in the town. And then finally, you speak to an FBI agent who's an expert in white supremacy. Uh, And uh, the members of the black community that she speaks to include um, a kind of older woman who's there with her grandchildren. And she speaks about her sense that, uh, you know, things have gotten better from when she was young prior to the civil rights movement in Jasper. Uh, you hear from another woman speaking about the histories of lynching uh, and talking about how it wasn't she, her family managed to escape it, but only only closely. Her brother was almost uh, attacked. Um, the histories of lynching that clearly sets up this kind of paradigm where what happens with 
James Burr Jr. does not read as a departure from those histories, but very much a continuation from them, even though everybody else in all of the interviews keeps saying, oh, well, this is a one-time thing. It would never happen. Like the racial politics here are fine. And um, and then there's other interviews we hear from as well, which we can come back to. But, uh, but yeah, so this question of like whether the journalistic elements work with the avant-garde elements or whether, you know, Ackerman is sort of purposefully integrating these in an interesting way or whether it's a kind of haphazard mess, I think is sort of one of the questions. Um, I don't know. What is that? Does that prompt you to think of anything? Uh, well, there's all that. Plus, I mean, I, just, I think it's worth adding that the film cannot help but play a little differently with a few decades of hindsight, knowing that, um, of course, white supremacy has been eradicated and we have nothing else to think about. And this is ancient history, not relevant to our lives anymore. Exactly. Uh, no, of course, right. you know, these things are still with us and express themselves maybe in, in subtly different ways. So that this this no, this notion of people trying to wrestle with, well, is it past or is it gone? Of course, can't help but play somewhat differently now. Yeah. And of course, it's like, I mean, Ackerman is also drawing those things out at the formal level as well as the content of the interviews, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, one one sequence that people comment on all the time is um, the well, during the landscape shot. She at one point she cuts to sequences of uh, an entirely black crew of men in prison uniforms in a field surrounded by barbed wire with a white man on a horse who is like the prison guard overseeing their labor. And it you know and it's like how can it not echo, of course, with these previous. Um, histories of slavery. And, you know, and again, we've talked about this a little bit in relation to Dust, this idea of the kind of distilled images of Ackerman's work. But again, she's very invested here in this project of how to how to bring out a past that's relevant for what happened to Bird without ever directly showing it. Right. I mean, there is no images. There is no footage of James Burr Jr. in this. There's no news footage of the crime. There is no um, historical footage. There is only these kinds of ideas of the landscape. And Ackerman sort of talking a different, Ackerman doesn't speak about it, but the film kind of evoking the idea of if you look at the landscape for long enough, you're eventually confronted with the idea that this is, that these landscapes carry weighty, horrifying histories as much as anything else. And that particularly becomes clear when the woman is speaking about lynching and she talks about the fact that the trees, often the trees that were used for lynching would grow differently afterwards. And then these images that Ackerman shows of, you know, beautiful landscapes with these kind of barren, gnarly trees on them become like terrifying, right? You know, really upsetting. The idea of the using the image to draw out a past and make it relevant for the present without without proclaiming to be able to speak necessarily on behalf of that present is a challenging line yeah. to walk. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's, it's very, it's really interesting to think about like, what would this movie have been like if she decided to have a voiceover? What kind of voiceover would it have been? Would it have been her explaining her decision to go there and contextualizing it in, 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 you know, the greater, uh, the greater story of her family history or whatever and she which things she totally opts not to do here and i think another another sign of i think her trying to do do right by the story is of course just how much of the film is in fact ceded to the memorial which is um, like it's a major chunk of a not very long film yeah it's 14 minutes i think 13 yeah. or 14 minutes yeah and i have to say that musical uh element of the of the memorial is stunning. I mean, yeah, that is, is one hell of a few minutes of, of of movie right there. 
Yeah, you have a the the memorial opens with um, a prayer, uh, which is it's interesting to me because I'm not familiar enough with this setup to know exactly what's going on here. But this during this extended prayer, all of the adults in the church are at the front of the pews, uh, kneeling down with the with the preacher, the pastor, and then all of the um, all of the kids are in the pews facing away. They're all kneeling backwards, facing towards the pew. So they're facing Ackerman's camera and their heads keep popping up. And it's like this really oddly charming image, despite the kind of... And, and to be fair, the film, again, things are not introduced to us with any kind of informational uh, coding or labeling, right? So when it cuts to the memorial service, you don't actually know that that's what it is. Like Ackerman has already shown earlier in the film um, a, a, a large kind of black community exiting out of a church on a Sunday morning in this sort of lingering shot. And, and we haven't said this yet either, but she she's already at this point integrated footage from uh, the different locations that she shot in in the South. So you have like a long tracking shot through uh, a series of kind of row row houses in Atlanta. You have, um, I forget where the other shots are from, but you, but, you, but nothing is labeled to us. So we don't know where we are specifically. We're just sort of moving through these different scenes and landscapes and then interviews. And then we find ourselves in this church service. And it's, and it's as time goes by that you realize that it's the memorial for Burr because then someone comes up and speaks at length about this. And, and in a theme that runs throughout the movie, he kind of lauds the family for, um, not expressing sort of anger and a wish for kind of vengeance in relation to this crime, um, but sort of rising above it. And after that, then it transitions to the sisters, some of James Byrd's sisters who are performing. I actually am not sure there's two sisters. I, I think only one of them is the one performing, right? She reads this really lovely poem while another woman sings. Yeah, it's quite, quite amazing. Yeah, it's basically like an R&B, like a spoken R&B ballad originally mm -hmm. yeah. composed for this memorial, which is incredible. Yeah, I mean, people complain that the this, the the recording and like the audio in that sequence are not great. That And I don't know why that, I mean, A, we should also say the whole film is shot on video. And so the film doesn't look like the film is not crisp. The film is, is early video recording. And so it looks really kind of, the light is a little too overblown and everything it looks fuzzy uh, and then when they're filming this memorial sequence you get the sense that they simply didn't have the time or the ability to set up their own kind of sound recording so it's it's capturing the sound system of the church via their and, and it really kind of garbles a lot of the yeah. sound unfortunately the, yeah the church sound system is not equipped for the power of these voices and instruments. So there's just, mm -hmm. there's a lot of distortion being produced in a certain section of the, of this sequence that I don't believe is coming from Ackerman's uh, setup. Yeah, no, I think they were just, they just had to record in the space rather than being able to like have the audio directly from the mics and stuff, which is too bad. But. Yeah. But although there is something to be said for uh, capturing what it actually sounded like in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very true. But yeah, so the memorial is the memorial is sort of the one major standard of the film. And then, of course, the other standard of the film, and maybe we just can get this on the books before we kind of talk more about the people's reticence or hesitation about the film, I guess, is... Um, it, it the, the, the there's two major shots that are the same shot uh, that are broken up and and it first appears a little earlier in the film so when you're I forget where we are like we're maybe 20 minutes into the film or something when we start the first time we're introduced uh, to this the crime the James Bird Jr. crime even though it's not named at this point is Ackerman speaking to a man in his house who was a witness so he heard uh, the he heard the truck and you know stuff happening outside. Um, and then went back to sleep. And then he says he woke up the next morning and the law was there. And then that's when they found the body. 
because he lived right by the road where this happened. Uh, and then when he says they found the body, it cuts to uh, a shot, a short shot at that point. I think it's like maybe two minutes out of the back of a moving vehicle down this road, Huff Road, where Bird died, was killed. Um, and it, it, the car travels for a little bit and then it ends at the cemetery where uh, Bird's body was released. Um, and I actually didn't realize this until reading about it this time. I think it's in an essay by Nicholas uh, Lubecker, which is a great essay uh, about the film. He mentions that that sequence, that that end of this long shot, then doesn't appear at the end of the film. And what you get at the end of the film is uh, the rest of the three miles that the car travels down that road. So you get a full, I believe it's seven minutes long take of the car uh, out of the back of this car looking at the road where Bird died. And the you see on the road the kind of red highlighted um, circles of spray paint on the road where parts of his body were found. Um, and as people have said about this image, it may be the most, even though it's ostensibly empty, it may be like the most violent image in Ackerman's move. And I think it's probably very true. So I don't know. How did you, how did it hit you, Simon? I definitely, uh, it, maybe this is my weakness, but my first thought when, when I realized what she was doing was, oh, this is something people will have thoughts about. <laughs> <laughs> and not having my own thoughts maybe that's just a a, a a product of doing this podcast too long but um i thought it was uh was it necessarily like the most low-key and classy choice i don't know probably not but um <laughs> i don't know i mean i think in the history i think the history of documentary has uh, a lot worse trespasses than this to be honest yeah and i i'm not like i didn't i didn't mean to make it with the conjunction there make it seem like people specifically have issues with this ending i don't actually know if that's i i haven't read as many criticisms of the ending so i don't think that that's it um i think most people most people approve of it as a kind of like you know political aesthetic gesture um and have read it in in different ways i mean i i've you know like i i read about it in an essay i have on the film where i talk about i don't know how it kind of links up with ackerman's larger concerns about drawing out the relation that spectators have to the image, like the material physical image of light projected on the wall and its representations, um, drawing out the relationship there as kind of like ethically and politically fraught as the image, as the relations we have with other people. And like that playing into Ackerman's framing of the image as like people and people as like images that you can't get through, which is a mouthful and that article is dense. So I don't <laughs> need to go through all of it right now. But it's, um, but yeah, basically just to say that, that one of the, like one of my readings of the ending is that it it obviously very much starts off with these kind of, this sort of challenge to the spectator in the sense of, you're put in the position of having to, or at least it feels like you have to imagine the crime, right? Like that you're watching this image unfold and that you have to, that you're powerless against these images coming to you. Um, and, and it's complicated because it, the film quite literally puts you in the vantage point of the people who killed him, right? Like the three people, like you're looking outwards from the back of a truck, which I don't hear people talk about very often actually with that scene, which I think matters. I, I don't know how exactly, but it matters. At a certain point, because the sequence is seven minutes long, at a certain point, your mind inevitably starts to wander, right? Like you can't keep thinking about this stuff the whole time. And so then you start to sort of ask yourself questions like, why is Ackerman showing this to me? Like, what am I supposed to do with this image? How am I supposed to feel about this? Am I behaving like properly in relation to this? Should I leave? Should I keep watching it? Like to me, though, that is Ackerman's investment in the kind of 
politics of this film as much as anything else is these questions about like making you think about the act of representation or the act of spectatorship as much as it is about some kind of fealty to representing the crime itself. Um, but yeah, I don't know. What do you think? Sam? I feel like it doesn't have a, there, there's a, a lack of settledness to the style that I really like in terms of how they interplay with each other and how, you know, how one sort of stylistic thread messes with the other one. And I, I, I get the feeling while it's happening of like an aesthetic that Ackerman and company are kind of like cobbling together just to see how, how we experience it. And um, to me, like, like it, it doesn't feel like she's put these things together to say, aha, like, here's my, here's my, my considered political argument. Here's my, my condensed take, like you said, of, of the total American South or whatever. It's more just it's a it's a way to to make us reflect on the situation and the landscape uh, in a way that I, I think I think is really effective. Yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, it's interesting, like I think, uh, you know, Marion Schmid talks about it, the sense of the interviews, um, the, the fact that the film kind of gives you all of these interviews, but then doesn't feel the need to. Um, reduce them down to like a party line like the fact that they often quite explicitly contradict each other for example the sheriff who's like it's economic problems it's not racial problems and then you cut immediately to a expert on the white Aryan movement who's like of course it's racial problems and it's so I mean the fact that the film sort of sets these things up that way it's like you know Schmidt points out that this is this perhaps makes more sense to talk about in conjunction with Ackerman's interest in like you know the modernist trope of uh of like multiple viewpoints on a situation right like the kind of the question of subjectivism rather than a sort of the objective view which you know i think is absolutely true i don't think ackerman believes that you could achieve some objective vantage point on this crime or on this location all you can do as she says frequently is sort of present the re present what has happened in its complexity like you can give a sort of open-ended yeah uh, registration of it. Yeah, there's another really good example of it. While we're watching this long, the seven minute take of of uh, this stretch of road, another thing that's happening is because we're not actually watching the crime, we're seeing you know whatever Ackerman's present is. You know, there's other vehicles going by in the same or the opposite direction, which also takes us out of that moment and makes us think about the present versus the past. And I don't know. It's it's good stuff in my opinion. Yeah. Well, okay. So maybe let's, we, maybe I can try to cover some of these other things that people have been less, have been more critical of in the film. And then we can see how we, if we want to come back to the ending and see what it does in relation to that. Um, I, you know, I mean, again, I, I only have really two examples here, but I, you know, I, like I, I know hmm, both in relation to Sud and the Lodricote, I remember being at a conference and I forget, I was presenting something about Ackerman and I was a young and, you know, naive, like master student. And I, and so I don't even remember what I was presenting, but somebody asked me some question about uh, the kind of like Manichaean worldview of Sud and, and Delorte Cote, like this idea of everything is black and white. And, you know, and I remember being like, I don't know. And I, I'm sure I give some terrible answer, but like, I look back at it now. And then I've also had, I, I was with an academic once who got very upset when I mentioned Sud because this person was from the South and they hate Sud. They think it is a terrible, uh, like depiction. I should say that person was white and they, they hate it. And it's interesting. Ro Rosenbaum also mentions Rosenbaum is not crazy about the film. He talks about it in, um, an essay for the box set of the DVDs. And uh, he, what is the, he says the fact that the sort of the, the, uh, 
the fact that like the the film tends to often occlude the white populations in the town like even though they're they're kind of equally present in the interviews so i don't know if i agree that that's you know such a, a real complaint but by and large the footage that ackerman shoots is almost exclusively of black individuals walking around and neighborhoods populated by black people um the fact that it primarily focuses on that and includes the kind of more white population of the town to him makes it a portrait that is quote unquote far from complete and he calls the film sympathetic tourism which i am like I, okay. Um, so I don't know this idea of its, I think the idea of its relationship to a kind of representative portrait of the South is a fraught one, but I also, and, and of course it's one that Ackerman maybe invites by naming the film Soot, right? So like this is, and the way she speaks about it is as how it was sort of born. So there's that, but then I've also seen, I, I think it's also actually Rosenbaum again, maybe who makes this point, which is astute, which is that the film in a certain sense is, is very explicitly not made for an American audience. Like it's, you know, like it's made, he, he's like, my guess is that it's made primarily for a Francophone and European audience, that that's really what this is for. And I think, you know, that's interesting. Like neither of us are European, so I can't really speak to how that changes it. But I do think it gets at something here, which is that I don't think Ackerman is interested in kind of creating a portrayal that's part of the circulation of how this crime was read in the American media which brings me to the, the other set of complaints that I'll make about it, but or that I won't make about it that other people have made about it. But Simon, did you want to respond to any of that? Oh, I'm still stuck on the idea of Ackerman making a film for a specific audience is interesting. And it's like, well, if this film is for a European audience, aren't all of her films for a European audience? Yeah. And in that, which probably. case, what are we even doing with this podcast? <laughs> exactly. Canceled. Podcast is over. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, I, this is the problem, right? It's like, as soon as you start projecting this fantasy of a kind of empirical group of people that she's making this film for that have certain tastes. And so then the film operates in a certain way with them and not with other people. Like, you know, it, it's a bit problematic to make those kind of predictions or something, but I, but I agree. I just think it's useful to maybe point out that Ackerman's concerns as a filmmaker who works on the kind of like art cinema circuit in Europe, even though she is engaging with the mode of documentary here. She's not, she's not setting out to make a kind of product that is going to be this like standalone, self-sufficient, um, explanatory document about either the murder or about the South or about any of these things. Like it really, that's not what it's doing. It's, it's part of her larger kind of set of questions about history about the kind of oppression and murder and genocide of groups of people you know like these this is sort of the larger framework that it exists in i think yeah, yeah. I, I mean i'd be curious to know um people who who like the film less um how many of them are american or, or you know hail from north america because um you know is it just is it just the bias of well this is a country i know and so i'm going to evaluate her take on it differently because that is that what's what's secretly going on is that's my conspiratorial take on these criticisms. <laughs> I think that I think that might be part of it. Um, I think the other person whose article I've read, who, which you know, gives a, a very kind of, I think fair. Like I don't think it's it sets out to sort of destroy the film or anything. I think it is trying to be generous in how it reads the film, but is ultimately quite critical of it. Is um, so Meyer's essay. So so Meyer. So Meyer. Sorry if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Uh, it's called Texas is not Paris is burning. Uh, I think it's something like temporal drag and Ackerman's said, uh, I don't have the subtitle in front of me. Um, 
and so hails from the UK, I believe, uh, their essay is very kind of um, engaged in these questions of, of what you say, Simon, about the kind of enforced distance in the film and whether that is a sort of appropriate aesthetic strategy to deal with this crime, like that, whether these things work together. Um, and one thing I will say about uh, So's essay, it's very well researched. And these were not things I knew about Sud. And so I learned quite a bit in the sense of, so compares it with another film that was produced around the same time called The Two Towns of Jasper by Whitney Dow and Marco Williams, um, which is also a kind of observational documentary. And it was shot uh, around and during the trials of the three murderers who were all convicted. And I believe one of them has been executed. I'm not sure of the status of the other two. Um, but this is particularly interesting. I haven't seen that film, but it's particularly interesting because uh, Kristen Johnson, the documentarian and the camera person, uh, she was on the crew, one of the crews for this film. There was two crews. It was white, a white crew and a black crew. Um, and she was part of the white crew and shot footage for the film. And then some of the footage that wasn't used in that documentary makes its way into camera person. Have you seen camera person, Simon? Whoa, I have not seen camera person yet, but that's pretty wild. Yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I have a confession to make. Uh, I have seen as much of camera person until it gets to the point where she uses the footage from this film. And then I kind of had to stop because it is an incredible film. Like everybody should watch camera person. I need to go back and finish it. Um, but it is also very heavy. It's very much about this sort of like the kind of ethical weight and political weight that the camera person and the recording holds towards these kind of subjects of documentary film. And um, in the footage that's in camera person, you see the prosecutor in the James uh, Byrd Jr. case, whose name is Guy James Gray, um, taking out evidence out of a box. They're in a courtroom and he's taking evidence for the case out of this box. And at one point he takes out chains that were used to uh, attach James Byrd Jr. to the car and they're covered in blood and they smell awful. And he starts skagging physically. And it's, I mean, it's, and there's photo it, like it's one it's really upsetting and kristen johnson has i guess said that she was very th those sequences were the the sequences she was most unsure about including in the film both kind of like legally and ethically were really dubious and um anyway just to say it's I, so if for people who've seen camera person it, there's this kind of like harsh connection and um so mayor makes this sort of point that 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 film really kind of captures camera person, the footage and camera person uh, really captures something of the kind of like corporeal and embodied reaction to these kinds of crimes. Whereas Ackerman's film exists very much on the opposite end of that scale by really distancing, um, presumably really distancing the viewer and Ackerman from the material in the film. And as you say, some of this idea of Ackerman herself being kind of ex excised from the film that she's not present in and her voice isn't present etc cetera, etc cetera. um uh, and so this build so in the end myra makes this critique about how uh while ackerman's stylistic disorientations disrupt any reception of sud as a classical ethnographic film her absence could be said at its extremes to assume a, a quote sorry an imperial overseeing position that is in no way progressive or counter hegemonic Unlike uh, the lawyer handling the chains and camera person, Ackerman does not make her own implication in the racialized politics of embodiment visible or palpable. 
Um, however, I don't agree with that at all. I'm, I'm very much on the other side of that debate, but I'm, I don't know. I'm interested to know, like, what does that prompt for you? I don't know about that. That's just my, my instinctual read is just, I don't, I feel like I'm being asked to, to accept a dichotomy that I'm not sure exists. Yeah. Yeah. This, I, I think this is the thing is I, I, I understand what so is going for and making these criticisms. And I, and another, like another criticism that's interesting is this sort of complaint that Ackerman's film is about this idea of kind of drag about this sort of past temporality, this linking of the crime to the past. And for so this is a problem. Like the, you know, as they say, this is a, um, this is a crime that happened now. Like white supremacy is a problem now. These, this is not something that we need to be kind of like pushing off via this drag into the past, which I, you know, again, like I, I get it. And I, I agree with the kind of spirit of that complaint, but I also think that it's not needing the film on its, on the ground of what the film is trying to do. I just, I don't know if I agree with these things. I think Ackerman's film is not necessarily, Hmm about a kind of mentality in the current moment that would have people like it's her politics are not an activist politics. They are not a kind of, they're not that they're not about getting people to sort of take up arms and, and run into the street or, or organize or kind of engage in solidarity politics. They are a politics of kind of education, a politics of pedagogy, a politics of aesthetics, right? Like they are politics of like, she is committed to this kind of modernist project of the aesthetic and the political as linked and really thinking about what it means to kind of present certain aesthetic paradigms. And I think So's essay really operates on the assumption that documentary, the va the political value of documentary comes from documentaries ability to kind of represent political states of affairs, to be kind of faithful to those to make them present for people and to thus engage people to act on behalf of those states of affairs. And certainly many people believe that that's what documentary does. I don't think that's what Ackerman is engaged with documentary for. And I think her politics are different. Her politics are interested in operating at the level of like the spectator in terms of their own ability to reflect on, on time, on engagement with the other, which for Ackerman does include questions of race. I mean, maybe Ackerman is not very good at kind of theorizing specifically or even engaging in debates specifically that have to do with like the way engagements between self and other might be different when race is part of that dynamic, as opposed to, um, you know, ethnicity, like, like people have read Sud very much in the level of it tying the kind of ongoing history of uh, white supremacy and black oppression to the Holocaust. Um, However, and I, that's true, that's there in the film, but I don't know if the film conflates them and I don't know, but it, neither does it, but neither is it a film that's particularly offering kind of tools to think about the differences there either, right? Just by nature of its project. And so I could see that as a complaint. I mean, it certainly seems like uh, Ackerman can't win here. Like yeah. <laughs> even, even handling this subject matter. I mean, had she been had she offered narration or her perspective can you imagine the criticisms then that she'd be opening herself up for and of course she opens herself up for another set by not being there but this is the thing i i don't know if ackerman isn't in like this idea that ackerman is not in the film because she doesn't have voiceover and she's not physically present or she's not you don't hear her interviewing the people i just don't know if i agree with that it's like that I, to me if you if you want to say that ackerman's 
quote unquote authorial presence is is there in John Dealman. It's here in Sud. I mean, right? Like this idea of the investment in the long take, the investment in um, the kind of conflation of landscape, uh, like landscape as being made equivalent to the idea of the speaking human, that they both speak equally. Like that's very much a sort of Ackerman thing. And then the fact that the film ends with this embodiment of Ackerman with the camera looking out of her car from the position of the murderers. To, like, I, I don't know, to me, this idea that you would make the film not about embodiment is, I don't know if I agree with that. Like, yes, Ackerman doesn't make it about admitting her own kind of racial subjectivity or, or her lack there. Like, like that's not what the film is doing, sure. Um, but I don't know. I mean, and one of the other complaints about this, the film too is this idea, and this is, a, maybe this is just an interesting question, is so kind of points out that, you know, this film might read one way on the art house circuit, right? It premiered at Cannes in the director's fortnight and then played major festivals where people would approach it as a kind of Ackerman film. But then apparently, and I didn't really know this, apparently it also played um, like human rights film festivals and, and whatnot. And so there it would inevitably be taken up as part of this larger discourse about James Byrd Jr., about hate crimes legislation, because Byrd Jr., um, along with Matthew Shepard, were the two figures who uh, like presaged the development of hate crimes legislation in different U.S. states. Uh, anyway, so I'll just say that like complaint is, but in those festivals, people won't know who Ackerman is and they won't, they don't have the historical context to like read the landscape the way that Ackerman wants it to be read and next Y and Z. And so it's a, you know, quote unquote, like implies that that makes it a sort of problematic political project. But then I'm like, but then so is didactic documentary, the only acceptable political aesthetic form? Like, I just don't agree with that. Anyway, all to say, these are just, I, and I, I, if still listens to this, I want to say, I really, I, I respect what they're doing. I respect the, the writing. I think it's really well-researched and interesting essay. I just, ah, it's interesting. I feel like I have strong feelings about this, but maybe I'll just, we can wrap up by saying, I think this is probably the value of Soot in a lot of ways is the fact that it really prompts these kinds of heated debates about these questions. I mean, still to this day, and as you say, Simon, the film reads completely differently now than it would have even five, six years ago. Like it really, even the fact so often of, of particularly members of the black community here, um, downplaying the reality of, of racial strife, like saying, you know, oh, well, the, the town is fine and this is just a, an exception and everything else is okay. Like that, that even I think would, it just reads very differently now it, than it did prior, you know? Yeah. And I don't know, one thing we haven't, the last thing I wanted to mention also is just, I, I love the way that because of Ackerman's approach, and this is, I don't think anyone else would have let this in. Like there's actually also like a beauty to some of the long takes that are in here also like um particularly uh the one near the end where we get sort of a, a news from homey shot of of sort of just a just a an, an average street on an what looks like uh you know potentially four in the morning and it's like it's it's pretty quiet and it's just i don't know it's it's almost it's almost got a, a romance to it in a strange way yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, and that's a good point to bring up because I think Ackerman is very was very aware of that. The way she talks about this film is that she was very set on the idea of kind of of knowing that looking at the landscapes can be quite pleasurable. Like they they, they could be quite beautiful. That this the sound of the crickets, the kind of the feeling of warmth and humidity in the air, like all of this could be quite pleasurable. And her point was that she was like, I wanted to to hold a shot long enough that you would have to move from the pleasure of experiencing these landscapes into the kind of remembering of the history from that. Right. But for her, they're definitely both there. Mm -hmm. Is it, 100%, is it, yeah. uh, I know that uh, our next feature is post sync sound. Is this also uh sound added later, like usual? 
Uh, yes. And in fact, that brings up an interesting point because I, I think Marion Schmid along, you know, as part of this discussion that this film is sort of more kind of straightforward in the way that it's shot. Like for example, it doesn't, and she's right to point this out. I hadn't really thought about it this way, but that Schmid points out that it, unlike Dest, so it does not use the kind of like color filters or uh, more unusual lighting setups to kind of stylize the image at all. It looks, you know, quote unquote realist, which the video, you know, either supports or detracts from depending on how you are thinking about that. Um, but so yeah, there's this sort of realist element to it. Schmidt, however, writes that she doesn't, she just uses sync sound in this, but that's actually not true. Uh, Nicholas Lubecker uh, points out smart, I'm sorry, it's not Nicholas, it's Nikolai Lubecker, uh, points out quite smartly that one of the long takes that you have later in the film that's sort of moving through a forest, um, if you're paying attention, you realize that the camera is moving across like a huge length of this forest, but the microphone obviously is staying in one place because the you just hear the same birds and the same nature sounds like in the same physical proximity the entire time. So Ackerman is doing these kind of subtle, strange things to play with it, but it's not as pronounced as it is in some of the other films, for sure. Well, we should probably wrap up on this one and get to our second and final feature of the episode. And I'm sure, as usual, we'll have occasion to... Uh, to cross-reference these two because they have a lot in common. Côté, or From the Other Side, and it was uh, released in 2002, and uh, astute viewers will notice a reference to 9-11 in here, so we are very much this, if if you were around for that, this will take you back to a very specific time in your life. We're still on the Ackerman uh, geopolitical world tour here. Yeah, it premiered at the 2002 Cannes Film Fest again. Um, it was also edited by Claire Atherton. This one, the Sud was as well. So Atherton is, a, is an important presence in these films. Um, and this project, uh, I think, you know, it grew out of Ackerman's sense that she was sort of probably working on it uh, on an extended kind of set of documentaries about place, as people have described them. And I have, from what I've heard about how this, it's hard to sort of piece together what, where the area for this, where the inspiration for this came from. But one hint is that um, Ackerman had a Ackerman ha had a sister, has a sister who lives in lived in Mexico. I'm not sure if she still does live in Mexico, but Ackerman would go visit her in Mexico with some regularity. Um, and it's weird that that came up because I actually just was hanging out with um, Sofia Bodanovich, the filmmaker, who is a great filmmaker, and everybody should watch her films while they're on the Criterion Channel right now. 
and she just saw at NYFF uh, a film by Nicholas Pareda, the Mexican-Canadian filmmaker, that is that references the fact that Ackerman was going to rent Nicholas Pareda's sister's apartment in Mexico at one point. And so the film consists of uh, Nicholas reading this letter that he wrote to Ackerman at that time when it seemed like she was going to stay in his sister's apartment in Mexico. So anyway, just a weird Mexico-Ackerman connection that's coming up this week for me. But anyway, so she was visiting there and I think that sort of presaged the development of these ideas. And she uh, I, I believe was already like was working with this producer Thierry Garel, uh, who's the director of the French Department of Documentary Film at TV Arte uh, until 2008, I guess. Uh, he also produced um, as well as many other films by different people. Uh, and she, so Ackerman had this longer relationship with him and she says that she really loved him, but she would also fight with him. I guess he was supposed to be the producer on uh, the Middle East film that fell apart. And so when he kind of pushed her to explain, like he, he sort of pushed back on this film a little bit. Ackerman says she really fought for it because she felt like she hadn't fought for the Middle East project. And she says that, you know, when he, he pushed her to explain, quote, by what end she would be able to take this subject, uh, she wrote it. She wrote a defense of her approach uh, of quote discovering the documentary and making it, um, which we've talked about before. But sort of has to do with this idea of her kind of going to a space and wanting to be a kind of registering device and like discovering what is there while making it rather than a, a, arriving with a preset idea. But it's interesting because I wonder. Like I couldn't find any more on this, but I wonder if. Uh, Gorel's comment there, like by what end she would be able to take this subject is again, a kind of hint of like, well, why, who are you to be speaking about this question of like um, migrants traveling across? And we haven't said that that's what this film is about yet, but the subject matter of the film is um, migrants traveling across the uh, US-Mexico border. So I don't know, that's interesting. But then the film got made and uh, yeah, we can <laughs> dig into it. This film is really interesting because I think that it's even everything it's doing in Sud, this feels it's kind of squared here along with some other stuff that once again, she's never done in a film before. There were moments I was uh, really not expecting. I was definitely not expecting actual footage of actually going out with border patrol at night. Yes. Uh, yeah. Looking for migrants. I was not expecting the sort of a proto zero dark 30 night night drone shots or whatever of uh of migrants i mean yeah it's true that uh yeah it's definitely new and like and uh, schmidt sort of makes an interesting point about that she she talks about how the fact that this film is comprised of um different uh material like there's uh, video i guess there's 16 millimeter there's that footage the drone footage um or not drone footage i guess it's just helicopter like night vision yeah, yeah. footage right unfortunately um, drones will probably make this all much easier <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and so, yeah, Schmidt talks about the idea that this, this is sort of Ackerman maybe consciously going against her own ideas of kind of like modernist aesthetic purity or whatever, that it's very much this kind of constant, like this conscious pastiche of different mediums and forms as, as part of the film sort of like overt response to uh, xenophobic discourses of like purity and stuff, which I think is, you know, I buy that. I think it's an interesting point. Um, but yeah, we can, we should come there because the footage of the, from the helicopter doesn't come till quite late in the film. Um, so I don't know. Do you want to, do you want to say more about what your sense of what the film is? Cause you, this is the first time you've seen it, right? The first thing that definitely came to mind was it it's even more than so it's such an aesthetic grab bag of approaches. Um, one thing that, that came to mind, especially as sort of we, because it, we we start off with these um, lo sort of longer form interviews with um, 
essentially grieving parents uh, talking about uh, their connection to the um, to the subject matter of the film. But then as we go on, we we get sort of we get a glimpse into an Ackerman that I, I don't think ever really existed, which is sort of like like muckraker Ackerman almost <laughs> like troublemaker Ackerman in a sense, like where, you know, we actually have her going to places and doing and uh, in one sequence, ha- you know, sort of having this interview with a guy who, uh, who, who at one point says, he actually says, I'm not on camera, am I? Which is just such a it's like almost like almost going into like gotcha journalism like not not literally doing it but seemingly ge- gesturing at it so there's like i don't know i felt like throughout this film we're kind of getting glimpses of like you know had you know i, I often think about ackerman and parallel universes and i think wow if, if this film had found an audience she could have done an entire line of these uh of, of these types of films because i kind of get the feeling that Ackerman would probably be really good at getting people to say whatever is on their mind because she, she, I imagine her presence to be quite disarming in an American or Mexican context. Yeah, I think so. This like tiny little French lady, like, you know, yeah, I I can imagine. (laughs) Yeah. Very, very unthreatening. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, Well, yeah, it's interesting. I mean that, that sequence where she is talking to the guy and she's, it's not just her to the crew. There's like a male crew member's voice who you hear is talking to this guy too, but that's interesting because that sequence comes in the latter half of the film. So the first, it's not, it doesn't happen. The split doesn't happen at the exact halfway point. I would say it's more like the last third of the film is set in the United States. The first half, the first two thirds of the film uh, is all filmed in Mexico. And it's uh, particularly filmed around Agua Prieto, I believe is the name of the location uh, and nearby border villages. Um, and it, with a kind of, as these sequences develop, becomes clearer and clearer that the uh, the wall, the stretch of wall between the United States and Mexico is like a very present visual element in the film. Um, Because again, at the beginning here, it's like the film is a mix of sort of long uh, sequences of the towns, of the landscapes, of often people playing, young kids playing baseball. Baseball is more popular than I thought it was. I was expecting soccer. You only get one shot of kids playing soccer. The rest is all baseball. (laughs) So, um, but anyway, so the the idea of the wall, um, let's see. And then as it, and you do get these sort of longer interviews, not only with the, the grandparents that happens early on, but um, also various other relatives, often younger relatives of people who have left to cross the border uh, and have died as a result. And it's interesting, the film takes place at kind of like a specific moment in the history of um, the border crossings, right? Because like the INS, the Immigration and Naturalization Services still exists at this point. Like later on, it's split up into whatever it is, ICE, ICE and Homeland Security. Yeah. yeah. yeah like, so there's, it's split up later. So the INS goes away at a certain point, but INS is still in charge of the border at this point. Um, but in the wake of 2000, and I actually, I assume it was in the wake of 2001. I have to admit, I didn't double check that, but I assume this happened in the wake of 2001 um, is something that you hear people talking about more in the interviews later in the film is the fact that the INS made and, and certain uh, state officials, I guess, made like the cons- the quote unquote considered decision to force migrants away from the, tr- the traditional city points of crossing uh, into the United States, um, like closing those down with the idea being that it would turn people home. And as Ackerman says to somebody telling her this, well, whoever was making those decisions has clearly never been hungry. Um, you know, like, the, because all it did was drive the migrants into the deserts where, you know, the, um, 
people who are promising to traffic them across the border can take advantage of them and they often die in like horrible ways in the desert. And so it, it has massively increased the loss of life in just over that last year. Um, and so that's sort of when this film is taking place, right? Is documenting this kind of development. Um, Anyway, so yes, we see different family members kind of talking about this. The, se the sequences early on where she's interviewing those grandparents, particularly the grandmother, um, is very, it's, it's again, very affecting because the grandmother actually doesn't talk very much about what's happened, that her son and her grandson have been killed. Instead, you kind of watch her struggle to maintain composure and talk about other kind of distracting things, which to me weirdly echoes with I don't know. It like it echoes with Ackerman's kind of longer interest in things like domesticity and, yes. and yeah, denial yeah. and anxiety structuring and all of these things. Like it, it just is a really unsettling echo. Um, but anyway, yeah. So I don't know. So the, so first half of the film and then the second half of the film, we end up in the United States. But is there more you want to say about the the first half here, Sam? Well, it's just you. You sort of already alluded to this, but it's worth noting that um, Ackerman's voice is back. Ackerman's yes. physical, uh, presence is very much back in this film. I mean, she, as you mentioned, she interjects at a key moment in uh, in one interview, and you can see her reflection in a in the uh, in the television in the first interview with the grandmother. So uh, she's back, baby. I wonder. And, and I, I'd be I'd be curious to know again, like how how she arrived at the decision to to be uh, more more obviously present here versus her absence in uh, in Sid. It's true. I, I wonder if it had something to do with like reactions to Sud or or what, because it's like, I don't know, you know, like she she is visible a little bit in Dest, right? But not really. Like she's not she's not in Dest at all. Yeah. And so and then and so she's also not present. And then here, the dynamic between her and the interviewees is different. It's like the it's much more sort of personal and kind of like informal feeling. Um because it's not just that Ackerman's voice is present, it's that the people on camera are able to sort of introduce themselves and that they get these kind of more like self-contained uh, sequences in front of the camera. Whereas in Sud, nobody ever, you, Ackerman only starts probably after they've introduced themselves. So everything is given to us in like fragmented pieces. Whereas here it feels much more like a conversation between her and uh, whoever's being interviewed right which you know is interesting it's it it comes off as quite i guess respectful for lack of a better word it comes off as quite respectful of the people that she's interviewing um that question becomes a little more complicated when she gets to the u.s and the interviews change a little bit but particularly in the first half and we also should just say i had forgotten about this scene until rewatching it this time but truly one of the most stunning scenes in the film comes uh late in the sequences set in mexico when they interview when they're filming a group of migrants at the restaurant. Yeah. Holy man. Yeah. What was your sense of that sequence? Well, actually, I don't know if you noticed this, but the first thing that I noticed and then I had to rewind to confirm this is the the speaker is at the center of the frame, but in the back. And uh, of course he's flanked by mourners on either side. And there's uh, like nine, not maybe nine of them. Nine, yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And as soon as he says, so we're all, we're all illegal immigrants. These are our names. The there is a woman to his right, our left, who actually chuckles for a second. Did you know? Did you spot that? And I thought, yeah, I did. Yeah, which is which is which is a very interesting human little moment. And I wondered, is that like a nervous chuckle because they're on camera talking about their illegal status? I don't know, but it's an, a very interesting little moment. Yeah, I mean, I, what's so uh, like interesting about that sequence is it kind of culminates a thread that runs through the whole first half of the film, which is that you know, there's this transition in a lot of the shots from scenes of landscapes towards um, 
scenes of movement through the landscapes by Ackerman's car, by Ackerman's crew that are either, you know, doing her kind of famous, beautiful, long takes. Like at one point you get this incredible long take through uh, a never ending lineup of cars waiting for the border. And to me, it was such a, like we're on the Mexico side. So it's all these people waiting to get through the border. And to me, it was such a, a striking echo with Dest, just purely this kind of like, I don't know, like ecology of the image, the idea that in Dest, it's all people standing outside waiting in lines. And here it's all people waiting individually in vehicles. I don't know, man, that just it, like is a really strong <laughs> marker of the, the differences in these two films. But um, <clears throat> anyway, so they kind of move it through landscapes, but then you also get these sequences where it'll be like, you get one that's quite unnerving where they're in a vehicle, I, whoever, you don't know who it is, but the camera's looking out of the front dash of a car and it's nighttime and they're driving like through a bumpy, unlit back road for like endless amounts of time. And in the distance, you start to see these two big lights like bouncing on the horizon. And you're like, are those people with flashlights? Like, is this, it's a car? Like, you don't know what it is. Eventually, I think it turns out that it's lights on a, on a pole. But they come across like I, I actually can't remember, but at, at different points you see them filming uh, guards, like border guards, walking around in the desert with their flashlights, like you know, chasing and hunting uh, migrants. And so this idea of the kind of the landscape as as really inhabited by this sort of like you know what Americans insist on calling like a battle or a war, but is really just like hunting grounds like it you know like this it, it is very evocatively captured and then you get to this sequence with these migrants and it's revealed in the conversation in the restaurant that Ackerman's crew had like come across these people out in the desert somewhere like they're out driving around they had found them and the the group implies that they might have like not been able to eat like they might have been in real danger if the crew hadn't have found them and the crew brings them to this restaurant and they set up this sequence and you get the sense that what has gone on is that is that Ackerman or the crew has asked this group to write down something that they want to read to the camera and so he the, this main speaker the spokesperson guy at the back he reads this whole thing that the group has read and it is heartbreaking like it is I, I mean it is really <laughs> quite something that sequence yeah it's i mean it's it's i i defy you not to be moved viewer yeah i mean and at one point like he, he's speaking about how you know they're not going to give up they have to keep doing this because they despite all of the kind of like horrors heaped on them not only from americans but from um the kind of mexican institutional forces on this mexico side like all of this that despite this they they don't have any choice like they have to live so they have to keep trying to do this and but, you know, these these are their names and like these are who they are and this is what they want. They just want to be able to look after their families. And um, and the man on the front right side breaks down and starts weeping through the whole thing. And it's just like, oh, man. yeah, it's it's quite something. But I, I also think that that sequence is so important because it very much reads as this idea of like, I don't know that, that the film approaches these people as their own spokespeople, as, as people who's like you know, like that they have their own vantage on this. They are, they are experts on their own experience. Like they are, yeah, I don't know that they're, this isn't, I don't know how to say it. Nobody is trying to catch anybody off guard here. Nobody is trying to like, it's not like an observational thing. It's like, no, we're meeting these people as spokespeople, as experts on their own experience. I don't know. I just found yeah. it very moving. Well, I yeah. mean, it's, and it's, it says something that the first thing that he does is he announces, these are all of our names and he reads them all. Yes. 
and names are a big, big part of this film and a big part of the project, I think. Um, so as, as you mentioned, we do, yeah, we have this, this structure where the, yeah, about the first two thirds or three quarters or whatever are in Mexico. There's one more interview that I have to mention, uh, while we're on the Mexico subject, which is when, uh, she goes to the barber shop and talks oh, yeah. to the kid getting his haircut. And then <laughs> in my favorite cut of the movie, we do a, like a sort of a jump cut to this, the barber is nestling in the chair and you expect, you think, oh, we'll get his perspective now. Nah, he just sits there. <laughs> <laughs> he look he, like he's waiting awkwardly behind this guy as he's doing his interview with his scissors. Well, and he's like he's just sort of standing there awkwardly while this guy talks at length. And then, yeah, then it cuts to him sitting in the chair, staring at. I mean, it, yeah, I thought that was great. Um, I don't know what the descriptor is for it, like not endearing exactly, but just like engaging for sure. All of the interviews are like quite something, and it. I don't know. It says something that by the time you like wrap you wrap up that side of it. You get a sequence. You get many sequences of people standing on this side of the border. Um, there's actually one incredible shot where you see like a, a group of kids. I think a family maybe on one side of the border, the Mexican side, and then through a break in the fence, you can see American border guards milling around on the other side. So you see both sides directly, which is like it's a great shot. And then, but then I, what I find impressive is like there's another long kind of sequences of landscapes, and then it cuts to a shot of the border. And, uh, for, but now you realize like even subconsciously, I think that you're on the other side, right? Like it's like this moment that is un, unremarked in the film, but it's like this huge transition to now we're on the other side. This thing that like so many people in the film are trying to do and the fact that the film crew can just do it easily, right? You, now we can all just be on the other side of the wall is, I don't know, it's quite something. The main remark, I just felt like I was going to have to get in there about the interviews we get on the American side is... Um some bitter irony there in terms of the vaccine rhetoric that we oh i know oh my god <laughs> uh for those who have not seen this film there is uh ackerman does not do a lot of interviews with chuds who are racist or whatever but she does do one in particular i think she kind of gets all the racism concentrated in one interview. into the one group yeah <laughs> and um and they talk about how uh, these Mexicans, they're going to get all our vaccines. It scares me also with the Mexican people coming in as fast as they're coming in. It's, it, they can do the same thing because there's so many of them. They can take over and do a lot of damage here, you know. One of our biggest fears, actually, with, with Mexico people coming in, and I know there hasn't been very many cases, but the disease more than anything else, mm -hmm. okay? smallpox and stuff like this which hasn't but who's to say it it won't you see what i mean you know and there's not enough vaccine for everybody you know and it's like a friend and i were talking about you know the first things that will be given is to our kids our grandkids and all the young people you know like wes yeah. and i we've lived i mean i'd like to have it too but priority is the young ones, not us older ones that have lived our life. You know, it's uh, it's, it's kind of hard when you stop and think about it. I don't want to die, but of the two evils, my kids will live. This is, again, one of these sort of questions by the time we get to that interview. I just wanted to note one interesting point, too, about the first interview we get on the American side. It's um, set in this, like, diner kind of thing, and there's a guy who runs the diner, and he's 
walking around and he's sort of walking in and out of frame. And it's unclear. It's a little unclear if he's aware that Ackerman is filming. Like, I think what it is is that he thinks Ackerman is filming like a shot of the back wall and he's like trying to stay out of it or something. I really don't know. But I'm not sure if he knows he was being recorded. Presumably they told him before it ended up in the film. But, um, you know, he, he seems like a very sort of middle of the road kind of opinion haver about everything here. Like he's very sort of like, you know, he's not overtly kind of like hateful or anything. He's just sort of like, well, yeah, you know, we, there's, we see a lot of migrants coming through and like, and, but he sort of implies that they're like as harmed by quote, their other Mexicans as they yeah. are by like the American, but like there's like some dubious stuff there. And like, but you know, I mean, he's just sort of, yeah. Represents maybe the kind of like a, the the masses of Americans who do of all of it who are not as uh, engaged but yeah, are neither hatefully he's both sides of it. yeah exactly um, but what I find fascinating about that sequence is the fact that after we've had this whole first two thirds of the movie where Ackerman is interviewing individuals from Mexico in these very composed shots right these like really kind of beautifully in Ackerman style beautifully composed frames where these people are speaking in this very kind of like authoritarian is not the right word, but, but speaking in this very expressive way about their own feelings that we then, the first interview that we get on the American side employs this like visual rhetoric of like surveillance that the subject is unaware of, you know, like this idea that it's like Ackerman turning that back on the like first white interviewee in the film. Like I just, I just thought that that was fascinating. Um, and then, yeah, we get to the second interview that you were talking about with this couple and a kind of rural I forget where the, where it is exactly, but Texas maybe. Um, yeah, I think it's Texas. And yeah, they say uh, horrible things like oh, horrible, horrible stuff. Right. Not, not um, great folks. No, and, you know, and it's tricky. Cause like, I think again, some of the same kinds of problems that people had with Sud are at least, you are at least worth acknowledging here in the sense that Ackerman doesn't, you know, like she talks about the fact that that including an interview like that is the only time she does this. She didn't do it in Sud and that she includes it here. And, you know, and so I, I, it's something, I guess. But it also like this this question here of like in her own remarks about it, she'll say, oh, you know, those people are as trapped as anybody else. Like they're trapped by lack of education. They're trapped by all this. They're trapped by all that. But she doesn't. The film itself isn't going to. The structure and the kind of aesthetic mode that Ackerman uses isn't going to be able to bring those kinds of histories into the film itself, right? Like it isn't going to be able to make palpable why it is that Americans hold those views particularly. Like that's not what this film is doing. And so it's an interesting question, right? It's like, I don't know. It's just one of those things that I think that's not what she's doing, but it you are left wondering a little bit at the end if maybe something else could have been done there. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the film, it clearly privileges like it has like as it should you know the, the the sympathy and the attention is on the mexican side like clearly the like it, in terms of not not just sympathy but like literal screen time like america gets the short end of the stick uh for once is are you know are two interviews going to two or three interviews going to do it for summarizing you know american attitudes to the subject probably not it's just interesting to me like it's interesting it's interesting to me this idea that like ackerman's films are sort of very invested in this idea of history as a kind of trace or influence on the present moment but then i think when she when she moves to the interview so heavily it's hard because i feel like i feel like that idea is not as present in delotricote the kind of like drawing out of the 
history through the like intersection of the larger film with the interviews. So what you're left with, what you're left with is these interviews that end up holding a lot of weight, like emotionally um, and rhetorically, I guess. But the film, yeah, but then the film maybe falls a little bit into this idea of, of a kind of presentism where they don't have a sort of like grounding in economic realities and historical realities that I, I just, again, I, I don't say it necessarily as a criticism of the film because it's just, there's only so much one can do in these kinds of instances. But I do wonder if there wouldn't have been another way to approach these questions in this film that might have brought out those ideas a little bit more. I don't know. Like she, she very much talks about the idea of wanting to arrive in this milieu, like the Mexican American milieu, without any preconceived notions and without these kinds. Like she didn't want to rep reproduce like stereotypes about, you know, Mexico is this kind of like poverty ridden but like lively and musical culture, and then like you know the United States is this site of like modernity and wealth accumulation. And I think she certainly achieves that, but. Yeah, it's tricky. The sheriff, the sheriff guy that she interviews, I mean, he, he does an interesting job again, too, of like, kind of, she interviews a sheriff on the American side, and he, he acknowledges like, he's like, well, you know, people here have incredibly strong opinions about like private property, and they're, they want to live like free from the law and all of these things. And, but then, you know, but then he says, like, and that's fine, like, that's their prerogative from his perspective. But Again, he kind of brings it all back to this idea that the the people in charge of the INS and the different state officials made concerted choices to like bring Mexican population to harm, to like actively be killing members of the Mexican population as like to score political points. And like, so again, I, I, it's not that the film is totally on one side or the, it's not like all Americans, the film interviews are bad, right? There is of course the sort of openness there too. There's an openness, but also it's a very interesting interview with the sheriff because he there's a lot of sort of he he cushions all of his language so that so to, as to not necessarily blame anyone specifically yes um, and it, yeah. it leaves you with this total lack of accountability for uh, a basically what's written off as a bungle like a, a silly bungle that happened that you know happened to it indirectly or or directly if you like um you know end with the deaths of god knows how many people um, which, but it's all sort of, it's all very passive voiced and it's all very like, uh, it's, it's all been, it's all sort of very PR. even though, of course, if you listen to the details of what he's saying, he is acknowledging, oh yeah, we basically did like passive genocide, but it's all good. The, the increase, large increase in death of, of the migrants themselves, um, was a calculated consequence. Uh, it may not have been a planned consequence as such. Although I think it probably was, but you could you could probably make excuse for yourself and say uh, it, it was certainly an anticipated consequence of this action. You know, what else was going to happen? You force people into areas where it's more difficult to get water and shelter and, and the nurturing necessary to sustain human life. They're going to die. They're going to get sick. And things are going to happen, and uh, that certainly has occurred as well. So from every aspect, it was a bad strategy and a bad plan. Yeah, maybe this is exactly what I'm trying to trying to get at with the, with documentary and Ackerman sometimes is that I don't know. I wonder if just her her own affinities aren't. Oh, I don't know how to say this. That like I think her affinities towards the interview. I said something like this earlier. Her affinity, her affinities towards the interview are the strongest. I think when 
it's not about getting some like informational content out of the, the interviewee, right? It's about the kind of like emotional and effective space. It's about being able to kind of see or hear histories and, and affect behind whatever's being said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then I, I, exactly. But then I wonder sometimes like when the interviews are a bit more concerned about these, like, like the, when the interviewees of their own volition are making kind of arguments about like political histories or the lack thereof or whatever, that her, her distancing structure doesn't really, doesn't give the most like overt tools to allow, to put the audience in a position to be kind of questioning the information that's coming across, right? Like maybe that's what I'm trying to get. At. I don't know. Well, it's all, and you could also say as, as, as a criticism, if you like that, like when we, when we are talking to these authority figures, like the sheriff, for instance, you know, we're not getting the sheriff's reveries on his past and like exactly. reflecting on, on the crimes and his personal connection to them or getting them or, you know, thinking about how that touchstone, you know, connects to something else in his life. There's none of, there's no reflection in that sense. It's purely, uh, I am here to get this guy's perspective on the events. Yeah, I mean, and compare that to like the other long interview that uh, happens on the American side, I believe, where Ackerman interviews a man who works with the Mexican consulate, I think is what it is. He's a lawyer and he works on behalf of um, migrants who've crossed. Uh, and he talks at length about how part of his job involves calling the relatives in Mexico when migrants have died and um, telling the families that these individuals have died. And he recounts this story about how like they, they almost always at the beginning say, no, you're wrong. I don't believe you. I just spoke to them. Like it's, they're fine. And, uh, and then the story developed, he's like, you know, but then I have to tell them more. And I say, I have his, this person's ID. And he's like, and then the family members start to realize and they break down. And, and as he recounts this, he starts to become overwhelmed and he starts to break down too. And I mean, it's, it's like, again, it's a very affecting thing and it operates at a different level than just sort of giving you information about the kind of scope or uh history of the problem or whatever right it's just not that kind of analysis instead it like hits you in this different way um yeah i don't know i guess all to say that i guess i'll just say that like just ackerman like a version of what i was saying before ackerman's uh strategies are very good at bringing out political affects maybe more than like the specificities of political situations or or histories or information or something i don't know yeah well and i guess my because we, we should be thinking about wrapping up in the relatively yeah. near future um but like i don't know i think both of these films really work for me i guess because i mean at this point you know we're nine episodes in and maybe at, at this point i just have cap and save an ackerman syndrome or something and i just have to defend every choice or whatever but i don't know i think that these are brave films in a sense that she's, yeah, they you know, are. she's so far outside of her, you know, hypothetical geographical comfort zone. Um, you know, she's trying on all sorts of approaches. She doesn't, I mean, I haven't seen, you've seen more of what's to come than I have, but I'm assuming lots of things that don't recur in other, in other films. And um, I think that the sort of grab bag of, of approaches um, is uh, helps to keep the films alive in the present. Um, and I think there's one last choice that we have to talk about relating to the ending of this film, which is just another one of those only Ackerman would do this um, moves, which is, of course, ending with uh, yet another long take, except this time uh, there's it's story time with Chantal. And the story is, as I understand it, uh, completely made up. Yeah, she tells this like lengthy story about 
what is it? It's like David's mother, uh, this woman who's crossed into the United States and she's in Los Angeles. And uh, yeah, it's a bit blurry for me in my mind, but it's like her talking about this woman having different jobs and like being in this apartment. And then she sort of disappears. Like David, the son doesn't hear from her again and wants to find her, but she just sort of disappears. And it's very like, yeah, it's interesting. The kind of subjectivity in the story, like it moves through different characters. You're never sure who exactly she's speaking from. And um yeah, and then she she disappears, the woman at the end. Yeah. Very weird, right? Very, yeah. very weird ending, I have to say, even by Ackerman standards. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, to me, like I think it it calls up I don't know. It's an interesting like to me it's it's again a, her kind of making this gesture involving the idea that you know, so many of the people she interviews in the first half of the film, it's like that the, the people that they know who tried to cross, they die or they never see them again. And like this idea of it ending on a note of ambiguity, but like possibility around the, the mother surviving or like her having this life that isn't beholden to the politics of like visibility, right? Of the, of the helicopter chasing people through it. Like we didn't come back to that, but this, the film very ominously includes this sequence uh, shot as night footage out of a helicopter of, um, and you can hear the audio of the border guards, like talking back and forth to each other as they track down. It's horrible as they track down this group of, it looks like maybe 20 or 30 people walking in a line at night and they come out of a bush and they're, and like, as they appear in the image, the voice on the radio is like, hoorah, like they found, like, it's just, oh my God. And then you hear, and then at one point Ackerman includes this, um, a uh, shot of a group of like, I, I don't know, it's like border guard security personnel talking about uh, they someone has died, I think is what it is. I can't remember from their ranks. And then like talking about the battle, the daily battle and like the losses and we're fighting this war and like, it's just the jingoism and the it's really upsetting. But anyway, the idea that at the end you have this character who, you know, the, the image is this sort of dark night, this, this figure of movement and the ability to, sort of move freely mixed with the story about the woman who just sort of disappears out of knowledge, out of visibility. Like, I, I, I think I get what she's trying to do there. Like this idea of it being a kind of gesture speaking back to this kind of horrible tracking and yeah. Visualization of the, does that make sense? No, I mean, it's, it's, it's oh, no, I, I sort of just wanted to put it to you to see what you made of it because that was just one last curveball in a, in a movie in and a set of films uh, absolutely full of them. Um, and it also, in some strange way, it made me think that it um, it connected back to the Ackerman Cinematic Universe in some strange way. Something about that voiceover, after all these sort of stylistic divergences, just having her voice back on a long take made me think, ah, okay, this I I know I know this one kind of t- t- takes you back home. Yeah, it does. I mean, I I feel like as we get closer wrapping up here, I just wanted to say that. Um... I appreciate, like, I, I think I, I totally agree with what you were saying, Simon, about these being brave films. I feel like I want to make sure that I'm not coming off as being critical of them or something, because I really, that's not my goal at all. It's more just that I'm sort of trying to, I was interested in this podcast to tr- see if I could dig down a little bit into, um, I don't know, yeah, like, kind of describing these questions or problematics of, like, the intersection of the political and the aesthetic in Ackerman's films and, like, what it what it does and maybe what it doesn't do, which is not a criticism, right? Like, everything, things can only do a certain amount of things. Like, you yeah, can't, yeah. nothing can do everything. And so it's, like, these are, it's, I think it's important to be able to describe what her approach brings out that is very much lacking, I think, in a lot of, like, didactic 
talking heads, like, uh, you know, quote unquote, objective, argumentative documentaries. Like this is a very different lineage of, of a way to approach uh, kind of political questions or problematics in film. And as you say, I do think it is really brave. The idea that like, it's, it's a framework that's sort of gone away now that this idea that someone would have the kind of belief that, that they as a, you know, as a white person or, or, or more simply as someone who doesn't have the experiences, didn't grow up in the experiences being depicted on screen could presume to engage themselves in that problematic and create a kind of uh, space for that problematic to come across on screen, right? Like that, that so much of the kind of prevalent politics and aesthetics now would, would neuter that, like would forbid that as something. And I think that Ackerman's films are testaments to that fact that like realistic, like to my thinking, I mean, this is something I take from Cavell, but to my thinking, we're all speaking for each other all the time even even if, of course, there are different political and different power dynamics involved in that, and we're never all speaking from a neutral or equal place, we still can't avoid the reality that we include each other when we say this is how the world is like, this is what things, this is things how it should how they should be, this is whatever. And I think Ackerman is, I think it's important and impressive that Ackerman is attuned enough to realize that and to be overt in the fact of wanting to, hmm wanting to to draw in and make visible the others that she inevitably is speaking about when she speaks about histories of oppression and histories of walls and histories of destruction. Right. I don't know. To me, it's like very moving. Even if I, even if everything isn't always perfect in these films, it's like an incredibly moving project. Yeah. I agree with you. And I think on that note, we're going to wrap things up. Uh, thank y'all for listening. Uh, we'll be back it's, again at some point. Uh, whatever the schedule is now, you're just going to have to roll with it because, you know, life happens. Life does happen and it keeps happening. I'll tell you this, though. There's no circumstance unless one or both of us is destroyed that we will not finish this project. It'll get done. No, we're going to finish it. It's going to happen. Yeah. Even if I, even if it, it gets done out of pure spite <laughs> for no other reason. Anyway, uh, thank you, Kate. Thanks for listening, folks. We'll be back with another one when we're back. My dear beloved brother, things are not the same since you have gone. Our hearts are filled with sorrow and pain. We miss your smile and the way you entertain us with your musical style. He always told us that one day he will be known. Now James Bird Jr.'s name will live on. To mom and dad, he was the talent, creative one they had. To your siblings, Stella, Clara, Mary, Melinda, Betty, Thurman, and Levon, there was a very special bond. Your children, Jamie, Renee, Ross, this death was a great loss. In their hearts, he will always stay, even to his granddaughter, Taylor Renee. The way he died was such a disgrace. It was a major setback for all the human race. It is our hope 
James Bird Jr.'s death will bring some good, a legend throughout the neighborhood. This tribute is for you, James Bird, known as son, to others told throughout the world. Let these words be heard. I remember this Bible verse you always say to us. Yea, though I walk to the valley of challenge of death, I will fear no evil, for the Lord thy God is with me. I feel you saying those words to us today. Just walk on. Even though our hearts are hurting with pain, to just walk on. Love you, James. We love you. Walk with me, Lord.